You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Uh, so we're going to be, uh, we're going to start uh, John chapter 4 tonight. Don't stand just yet. Again, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a series on worship. And, uh, and there's not really, uh, in many, many cases, we won't really have one text. So don't, we're not standing. We're just going to um, have you turn to John chapter 4. We'll get there in a little bit. And again, I'm, I'm almost viewing this as one long message. And uh, you say, well, all your messages are long. No, this one is we're so long, we're going to spread it over over a few weeks. And, uh, and so uh, we have kind of are building each week on some of the thoughts that we've given uh, the last time. And again, uh, these uh, messages are built or established on a book that Dave Hardy wrote uh, called Worship in the Ear of God. And so far, we've tried to answer a couple of questions. And the, the questions we've looked at to this point are, the first week was, where's the worship? Uh, not where's the beef, but where's the worship? You know, where you're, everyone talks about worship and they say worship is here, come worship with us. But where is it really? If we're looking at the biblical definition of worship, where can you find it? And so then last week we looked at what is worship? Everyone says come worship with us. But you start looking around or, or to look at the Bible's uh, definition of worship, you might be thinking, you know, where is it and, and what is it? I mean, what is it really? Well, the first week we looked at how worship begins when a humble person seeks the Lord. And, and how we often think that worship is attending a service, but attending a service isn't any more worship than going to a club meeting or, or being a part of an assembly. If you go without a heart to seek the Lord, it's not worship. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. He said, I dwell in the highly, high and holy place with him also that as, is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And what he was saying there, it, God is saying that, that you, you, uh, he doesn't dwell with kings and he doesn't dwell with those who reign. Those aren't the ones who have direct access to God. He's looking for those that have a humble and contrite spirit. Those are the ones that, that, that he responds to. And when he sees us seeking him, God responds to our steps of humility with his own steps of proximity. We take steps of humility and, and God draws near. The Bible says in James 4.4, 4, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. So you can attend a church service and, and you cannot worship. You can sing hymns and you could never, never worship. Worship begins with a humble attitude of seeking God. But it also, and this is where we've been looking mostly. So keep your place in John 4. We're just going to look at a few verses as we go. Again, this is different kind of preaching than what I'm used to and maybe what you're used to as well. But Genesis chapter 18, I just want to look at the first instance. We looked at this last week, but we'll look at it again. Genesis 18 verse 2, if everyone could turn there. And we'll read one verse here, Genesis 18. It says in Genesis 18, 2, uh, and he lift up, this is Abraham, uh, and he's got visitors coming. These, three, these angels were coming to visit him. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, 
three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. And bowed himself, the word is shachah, which is the Hebrew word uh, translated most of the time is translated worship. Right now it's translated here in 18.2, he bowed himself. That's, so that's the first mention of the Hebrew word for worship. And the law of the first mention is important in interpretation. Because the law of the first mention kind of sets the tone for what you should think about when you see that word in the rest of the Bible. When you see the Hebrew word, and I know we have the, it's in English for us, but if you know what the Hebrew word is, shakah, and you see that later, then you know that when, when you see that, the idea that you're getting from the Bible is the act of, of bowing. And that's the law of first mention, which is a, a very common interpretation practice. The second time the word is found is Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. So just a few chapters over. Genesis 22, verse 5. Again, this is Abraham. And it says in verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder. And what's the word? Worship. Worship. Are you paying attention tonight? Okay. So catch up. Uh, he says, I and the lad are going to go yonder and worship. It's the same Hebrew word as bowed that we saw earlier. And so you start then to get the idea that the Bible, when it says worship, it, it doesn't have uh, this meaning that we're used to in our culture, that worship can be anything you want it to be. In the Bible, biblically speaking, biblical worship, um, it, the idea is that it's bowing. And if you do a study on the word worship in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation 7, 11, where it describes the elders and the angels falling before God, it says they fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. That's the idea that you see all through Scripture. So the challenge then in the last couple of weeks was who is our, who's defining our view of worship? Because there are many ideas about true worship, what true worship is. Many believe that worship is simply bowing your head. Uh, others believe that it's just having a reverent attitude while you sit in your pew. And some believe that worship is when you respond to a sermon. And those are not bad things. Those are good things. There's in no way is a sermon like this trying to get you to stop responding to a message. Okay, That's kind of the opposite of what I'm trying to do actually. Those aren't bad things, but are they worship? That's the question. Modern church culture has its own ideas of worship. And when you think of worship in today's setting, if someone was to say, come worship with us, what image do you see on a, on a pamphlet or flyer? Uh, if say, come worship with us, don't you see this right here? Arms outstretched, head up. And, and, and those, that's the idea that it's emotional, maybe my eyes are closed, and it can be, listen, that can be a meaningful interaction with God. The point is not, is that real? That's not what we're trying to say. The point is not, is that real? The point is, is that biblical worship? The, the point is not, is that wrong? I'm not saying that's wrong. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. The psalmist wrote, it's not wrong to look up. Um, but is that the Bible's definition of worship? That's all we're dealing with. I'm not saying that that's a wrong action at all. But the Bible's definition of worship is this. Face down. Bowing. On, your, on the ground. Humbled. And the word worship comes from the word worth -ship, 
uh, which means to attribute worth to something or someone. So when you combine that definition with the Bible definition, worship is expressing the worth of another specifically by bowing. Expressing the worth of another specifically by bowing. Just by bowing, your physical posture makes a statement about the person in your presence. You are ascribing worth to them. So we're going to get to John 4 here in just a moment. But, um, but let's, I want to just start by with what bowing means in our culture. Now, if you think about bowing in our culture these days, uh, it's hard to think of, of instances in which bowing or kneeling is a part of daily life. I mean, think about it. It doesn't happen very much. Honestly, the closest thing that I could really think of to bowing outside of a religious setting, the closest thing that I could think of in American culture um, to bowing is when professional athletes kneel during the national anthem in protest of social injustice. I mean, you think, think about it. Do you, can you think of a lot of instances outside of a religious setting that you see bowing or that you see that posture the closest. Again, the closest thing that I could think of is when professional athletes bow during the national or kneel during the national um, anthem protesting injustice. It used to be that kneeling or bowing was a sign of respect to the other person. Now, in an ironic twist, our look at me culture has made bowing or kneeling about me. They've redefined the posture, which makes me think that we need a study to better understand what worship is. Much that is, is written on the topic of worship, even by authors that we would respect, mentions very little about the physical bowing aspect. I even know, I know pastors that are even hesitant about suggesting the physical act of bowing uh, to a congregation. Understandably, it's something that's new. It's something that's unusual for most congregations. Honestly, it can be uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. It's clearly not trendy. When we say worship by bowing, that's not the trendy thing to do. Worship accompanied by bowing, though, together before God, it's rare in most services, um, but it, it's biblical. So what does John 4 have to do with this? Well, the discussion then might become that some people would say, well, in, in John 4, Jesus talked to the woman uh, that he met, the woman at the well, and he told her, now, it's no longer about this. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And, and then you kind of have this argument from one side saying that if it's spirit and in truth, then it doesn't really matter what worship is as long as it's sincere. And they, they take what Jesus says here to mean that worship is being redefined. But you don't see that worship is being re redefined in John 4. We have to remember what he's talking about here. He's referring to places. See, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The Samaritans worshipped in Mount Gerizim, or on Mount Gerizim. And even look at verse 21. It, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now understand, Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ is not saying, this is John 4 verse 21, Jesus is not saying, now listen, in, in, their time is going to soon come that, that the act of worship is going to be transformed. 
He doesn't say the time will soon come that, that worship can be whatever you want it to be. No, he says the time will soon come that it won't be about where you worship. So it was about, his, his reference here is about the place. So to downplay the physical act of worship is to, I believe, miss the context. He's not redefining worship. It would have been understood that Jesus was talking about the physical act of worship, but making sure that the woman that he was talking to, that she knew that a physical act without a heart falls short of true worship. So in my, in my mind, he's not saying you can worship however you want to. He's trying to give her a balance and he's trying to say, listen, worship is not just about an outward thing. A heart must be involved too. But he's also not saying worship is no longer about the outward thing. He's saying worship, it's not, a, it's not about the place. And be thankful for that because understand, if we were in certain religions, we would have to make a trek to a holy place once in our life so that we could actually literally really worship where we were supposed to. I'm thankful that God doesn't make that, uh, doesn't stake that claim in our lives by saying, you've got to come to Jerusalem once in your life and worship on this mountain if you ever want to be a true disciple. No, he says you can worship anywhere. I'm thankful for that. But he doesn't change the definition of worship. Bowing was practiced from the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in Revelation. This is not a cultural preference from age to age that we can say no longer applies. It seems that the only age, just be honest, it seems that the only age that doesn't regularly practice biblical worship might be the modern church age. Worship is a prominent word. It's mentioned well over 200 times in the, in the Old and New Testaments, it, it cannot be treated as a once used word that you can, maybe a narrow nail on which to hang a, a claim. No, it's rather one of the more redundant words in scripture. And again, that gives it clear support for its meaning. And it's interesting that there, there is some support even from the secular world. I, uh, there's a, Dr. Hardy references a book called Psychological Science, and he was looking at researchers that are looking um, actually, I don't remember if he referenced it or this was from when I studied for this the last time in the Sunday School series. So wherever it came from, psychological science, it really was, it was on the internet, so it's true. Um, but I bet re researchers are looking at physical factors that increase the effect of awe and therefore strengthen belief in the divine. You say, well, now you're talking about weird stuff. Well, it's psychological science. That's the name of the magazine. But they said, for example, they tested whether or not adopting submissive body, po body postures, which make us feel less powerful, might dispose us to experiences of awe. And there's a doctor that said, and I can't pronounce his name, but he said, such a link could perhaps explain the presence of such postures in religious practice, such as kneeling, bowing, or gazing up. He added, the more submissive we act, the more awe we might feel, and perhaps the stronger our beliefs come. Now, this is a purely uh, secular approach to this. And they're saying that when you put yourself in a posture of vulnerability, in a posture of less power, it causes you something in you as a human being to respond naturally to the things that you're thinking or feeling and have more feelings of awe 
And therefore then, potentially in his mind, I think he probably has a little bit of it backwards. He says, the stronger our beliefs become. Now I believe that you believe what you believe and already truth first, emotions second. But we won't get into that so much tonight. But what if secular experts end up discovering that bowing in religious practice increases awe, but those who already have or possess strong biblical evidence and strong doctrine of things that we should believe and evidence that bowing should be a part of our regular practice, what if we're the ones that overlook it? Consider this example. This is from Brother Hardy's book. And it's, it, he, it was illustrated by a church vocalist. Uh, he wrote, there was at one point at their church, Eastland Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he tells a story about an ensemble that was singing a song um, called, Oh, Purify My Life. And I've, I've, I know the song, it's a beautiful song. It's based, I believe, probably on Psalm 51, where David is singing to the Lord about cleansing and purifying me. It's, and on one occasion, they sang it while they were kneeling. So, so they, they, for some reason, I don't, I don't know the background of it, but during the service they got on their knees and they sang, Oh, Purify My Life. And the church's pastor, Brother Hardy, he then later asked one of the men about that occasion. He asked them why they never sang it while kneeling again. And the, the vocalist said, It was definitely a spiritual experience as well as an emotional one. Speaking for myself, when I sing, my effort and my prayer is to sing not just the words and notes, but also the message. This song, being written and sung in first person, is easy for me to personalize. It became a prayer, which then, so he's giving his testimony while they were singing it, he said it became a prayer, which then became stuck in my throat. I wanted the words and notes to come forth, but I choked up. Because of the message of how my devotion compared to the love my Savior has for me. And there's a certain level of performance required on a platform in front of people. So the difficulty for me was the balance of personalizing the message yet presenting it in an acceptable manner to the congregation. And I've been there before. I understand there are certain songs that are very personal to you. And when you get up and try to sing them, you almost can't get the words out because they mean so much. But, but it's interesting, though, in that situation, he had sung that song before. But the act of kneeling while he sang it, it wasn't intended to be a worship time. But the bowing added to the effect of the song for him. Not that the words changed. And it's not that the notes were different and it's not that the lights went down or the smoke got thicker. It's not that any external variables were adjusted. No, the reason that the song became so difficult was because of the posture of the singer. The posture, folks, it does something. It's a natural, unspoken way to ascribe worth to someone else. Tell me how, in a couple of weeks ago, when we looked in Matthew 25, how that Canaanite woman who ran up to Jesus and begged him to heal her daughter who was possessed of a demon. Tell me how that woman knew that the right response in that moment before the Son of God was to bow on her face and worship. Nobody had to tell her to do that. You can go to the, the thickest jungles of South America and other places and you will find in religious practices in those places, first of all, they believe there is a God or many gods and they worship those gods and typically they worship by bowing. 
It's not something cultural. It is something that is a natural physical response to a God as great as ours. In addition, then, the words spirit and truth that we see in John 4, though they're very important, they're not inherent to the word worship. But bowing is. Are they suggested in the use of the word? Well, I believe absolutely. If you read John 4, 23, spirit and truth should be involved. Spirit, that it should be genuine. Truth, that it should be sincere and based on truth, not just emotion. But right now, we're endeavoring, though, to allow the word worship to speak for itself. That's what we're focusing on. And the attitude of our culture seems to generate this aversion to kneeling Disrespect, it seems, is the order of the day in our country. Kneeling now is a sign of protest or disrespect. It's not a sign of respect or ascribing worth. But if you observe Eastern worshipers, especially those of the Islamic faith, then the aspect of kneeling or bowing or prostrating oneself, it is unmistakable. It is the primary image of their worship. The necessity then of spirit and truth in the worship experience is native to the act of worship. It's part of it. It must be there. In other words, just because somebody bows doesn't mean they're genuinely worshiping. But also the balance is just because you have the right spirit and heart and genuine sincerity, can you worship biblically without bowing? That's the question we're asking. You know, the Hebrew culture had no problem bowing or kneeling. I mean, we already read Genesis 18. Abraham Abraham bowed before those three men. In Numbers, Balaam, the Bible says, fell flat on his face before the angel of the Lord. In 1 Kings, Nathan bowed before King David. In 2 Kings 2, the young prophets bowed before Elisha. The Old Testament is full of these occurrences. But in our modern American culture, to whom do we bow? No one. If we were to be ushered into the the presence of the most powerful man in our country, which right now would be President Biden, if we were to be ushered into his presence, uh, if we were to greet him, in, in, in spite of your political leanings, if we were to greet the most powerful man in our country, we still wouldn't bow. We would shake his hand. I mean, and any president you liked better than him, if you loved Ronald Reagan and you met him, it would have been weird for you to bow before him too. It's not part of our culture. You shake hands. So my challenge then in this is, is this question then, are we being biblical in our worship? It's interesting to take note of who and what sort of person brought up the subject here in John 4, isn't it? I mean, think about this woman, this woman at the well and Jesus is, is talking to her and, and, and look at verse 17. This is the kind of woman. The woman answered and said, verse 17, John 4, he, she said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands and, the, and, the, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. So he's talking to a woman of, of low character. A woman in her culture who we would say was of ill repute. But it's interesting, the one that brought up worship, Erwin Lutzer said this, he had this sort of person in mind when he said, God is looking for worshipers. And listen, and this is humbling, it's convicting. And if the religious elite are too proud or too busy to learn to worship him, he seeks the worship of those whose lives are trapped in moral ruin. 
I mean, and, and listen, if somebody humbles themselves and truly repents of their sin and comes before God, I mean, and has never stepped foot in church before, um, he might be more pleased with them in a genuine act of worship than some of us who've been sitting in church for 20, 30 years and are, are kind of too elite to change our worship practices. Was, such was the case this woman Jesus met at the well. This was the occasion of the very text where he expressed his personal desire for worship to a woman like her. And I know there is no doubt that some may bow and call it worship and yet do not do it in spirit and in truth. That is not right. And there may be many who never physically bow but have a genuine attitude of spirit and truth. That is commendable. But does it completely fit the definition of worship? That's the question. It's not about motives. And it's not saying that your experiences aren't real and not diminishing from what moves you. If worship, we're, we're talking though about the definition of, of worship. And if worship is our goal and if we are capable of physically bowing, and I, I understand some are not. Some are not capable of physically bowing, and I understand. But if those of us who are, when it comes to worship, if we're capable of it, and we know that's the biblical definition, then why don't we bow? Even with some understanding of the need to bow, most don't. Why is that? Who can say? There's a spiritual element of worship, maybe not adequately served by the word bow, but there is equally a physical element that's not adequately served by the absence of bowing during worship. You know, the first, H.H. Rowley said the first element in worship is adoration. When you combine this feeling of sincere heart level adoration of God and the physical act of bowing before him, that's when you finally, according to the Bible, have genuine worship. And we could read on and on. Some biblical texts suggest that bowing is sort of a litmus test for worship. I mean, I, I remember I read just today, 1 Kings 19. Elijah was in duress and he said, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, there's 7,000 that have not what? Bowed the knee to Baal. So when God was talking to him, God's litmus test for worship was bowing the knee. In Daniel chapter 3, bowing to worship to show, to show allegiance to the command given by the king was given. You had to bow the knee to avoid being cast into the burning furnace. I mean, you, you could go time after time from the Bible, through the Bible. We, we just have to be willing to accept the connection between physical bowing and genuine worship. And I am not saying you can't have a spirit of worship without bowing. Nor am I saying that every time a person bows, that it's worship. I'm trying to help us all view worship as biblically as possible. That's where we're getting to. And understand, these thoughts are, again, in no way discounting how you commune with God. Some of my best times with God have been driving. You know, and I'm just usually asking forgiveness. No, so I've had great times in prayer on road trips when my family's asleep and it's just me and the Lord and I'm talking to him. 
I've had really good times when the music is playing and there's a good song that speaks to my heart and ministers to me and, and the tears are coming and flowing and I'm just thankful to God and I'm praying. I've had plenty of times where I'm working outside and I'm just talking to the Lord or listening to a message and God is working on me. I'm thankful for those times. I don't discount those times. Those times are real. It's communion. I'm grateful that God says it doesn't matter the place. He's looking for spirit and in truth and and, and that relationship can be real. I'm not making light of how you express your relationship with God. These thoughts aren't erasing your meaningful moments with your Savior. But they do confront us with whether or not we can call those experiences worship. There's something. Those experiences are something. But biblically speaking, are they acts of worship? The simple act of bowing was and remains today essential to the idea of biblical worship. So the questions I have, and then we'll be done. Are you willing to accept the Bible's definition of worship? Are you willing to accept the Bible's definition of worship? And if not, can you go through the Bible and find a different definition of worship? Two, more than worship, how passionately do you seek the Lord? Bowing or not, how passionate are you about seeking the Lord? Because if the heart is to pursue God and, and that's not there, then no amount of bowing is going to make you a worshiper. And three, will you be committed to pursue genuine worship biblically in spirit and in truth? Listen, that's all we're asking. And I know some of these things are, are hard to maybe understand or take. And yet I'm not discounting how you and the Lord interact or commune with each other. I'm trying to get us to a tight definition of the word worship. If we can do that, I think we'll think more biblically about the word. And therefore, I think we'll probably have a better opportunity to please the Lord in how we worship as a church. Just a lot of things to consider. I appreciate your time. Let's stand together and we'll have a verse of invitation. Father, I'm thankful for the clarity of the scripture and, and yet it's also sometimes difficult in that our paradigms have to shift. And maybe we've been thinking about something one way for a long time. And, and yet when we study it, when we look at it, it's hard to argue. And we don't want to argue with scripture, God. We want to be biblical Bible believers. And uh, I'm praying that we'll be worshipers, genuine worshipers. Not just in our bowing, but Lord, in our spirit and in truth. Genuinely worshipers. God, we, we want to please you in everything that we do. But if something like worship has been a part of our relationship, man's relationship with you from, the, from Genesis and will continue in Revelation, God, then I want to make sure that I am pursuing genuine worship right now. I don't want there to be um, on the timeline of worship. I don't want there to be a gap because during this age, us Americans maybe were, were too busy to worship or too experienced to worship or um, too proud to worship. God, I don't want a gap to be there because of, of me. And so I, I'm asking you to help me, help us to define our, our, our idea of worship, not by culture, not by preference, not by comfortability, but by scripture. 
God, would you do that work for us? I thank you for your people and for their willingness to hear a study on this. I pray that you'd help us as we continue to grow, to grow in this area and that you'd help us to be biblical worshipers. We love you and ask that you do your work in our hearts even right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.